If you'll take God's word and turn to Psalm 19 for a moment. Psalm Psalm 19, rather. Psalm 19, verse 1. We'll read the entire psalm. And we'll begin in prayer for a moment. I kind of want you to just wrap your your hands around this Bible because we take uh, it for granted oftentimes. If you're going to have any substantive ministry which is used to equip the saints for the work of service, Ephesians 4, it has to be tethered to a high view of this book, which is one of the really pillars of North Lake Bible Church. So I want you to put your hands to it. And I think this is an interesting morning as we're kind of filled with enthusiasm and anticipation of what the Lord's going to do in this neighborhood. I I don't know about you, but when I drive in and I see houses being framed and excavators, and I feel like every time we come in, there's 20 new houses each week. At least it feels that way. So it's really exciting to think about the way in which the Lord is going to use North Lake here in this community in the months and years to head. Now, while we're anticipating God working through North Lake Bible Church, uh, I also want to be mindful that God has already proven His power and sovereignty throughout the history of the church. So I'd like to begin with your hands on this Bible this morning. I want to just kind of bring us back down a stroll, of, uh, down memory lane for a moment to speak about someone, a saint before us, of which we should be very, very grateful In the late 1300s, a brilliant master professor there at Oxford by the name of John Wycliffe, he was known as the flower of Oxford scholarship, ventured the first translation of the Bible into English. What was Wycliffe's heart? His heart was to make the Bible heard and read in common English and not just Latin. Mind you, that was a crime in that time that was punishable by death. In 1401, Archbishop Arundel fumed at Whitcliffe even after his death and wrote this. He says, The pearl of the gospel is scattered abroad and trodden underfoot by swine. This pestilent and wretched John Whitcliffe of cursed memory that so of the old serpent. This was the mentality towards John Whitcliffe in his day and even thereafter. Well, Wycliffe, for this crime, he would only actually escape prosecution by actually dying at a Christmas service in 1384 of a stroke. Unfortunately for his Oxford colleagues, their fate was very different. Each of them would be systematically burned alive. Even 40 years after his death, Wycliffe's bones were drug up, dug up, burned, and thrown into the river Swift. Wycliffe would have the last laugh, however, as we look throughout church history, because even after his death, Wycliffe's manuscripts were two times as popular as Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. You would have a century later, linguist William Tyndale translated scripture directly from the Hebrew and from Greek into English, which still a hundred years later was still considered a mammoth don't in that day. Tyndale followed and imitated the scholar Erasmus, saying that he wished the word to reach the eyes of all women, Scots and Irishmen, even Turks and Saracens, and especially the farm worker at the plow and the weaver at the loom. Tyndale did at at least manage, praise God, to translate most of the New Testament into beautiful common English, which is still considered... Again, a crime punishable by death. He 
finished the English Bible in 1525, at least the New Testament, but he did not live to finish his overall project. King Henry VIII decided that Tyndale had violated canon law, which stated Latin alone was the accepted tongue of Scripture in translation. While Tyndale was perfecting his knowledge of Hebrew in order to bequeath to us the Old Testament, he was captured by Henry's troops. Tyndale would later then be strangled and burned at the stake, crying out in Belgium, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. The Lord in His kindness would answer William Tyndale's prayer. Tyndale's death was sentenced by the very king who would later, some years past, would actually go on to legalize the translation of the Bible into vernacular English. You see, once Henry converted to Protestantism and established the Church of England, it became okay in that day, in that moment, to translate the Bible into English, even as Luther did in vernacular German. This dead Tyndale would not only go on to be the hero of King Henry, but also the Tyndale Bible itself would become the most popular book in England. Why do we read that? When we say at North Lake Bible Church that we have a high view of God and a high view of His Word, we also need to be very mindful as we will spend the next few weeks looking at the doctrine of specifically bibliology. How did this book come to us? What was the origin of it? How did God in His kindness preserve it? And make sure that you this morning as we read Psalm 19 have a copy in front of your eyes. I pray that interjects a measure of gratitude as we now read Psalm 19 this morning. If you don't mind, I know you're all spread out. Is it okay? Can we go ahead and read this while standing? I know you've got notes and you've got outlines. That's okay. We'll shuffle. Let's stand. Let's read Psalm 19. Let's pray this morning. Reads, The heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as, br- as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Remain standing. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's favor for the morning, giving thanks for us being here, but also His providence and care for His people in years past. Lord, we, we do look to You this morning. We're grateful for this place. We know the church is not comprised of a building. It's comprised of a people who are not only made in Your image, but a people that You have procured their salvation through the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to thank You for the richness of this salvation. We want to thank You for the treasure that is this book as we just read in Psalm 19. Lord, we pray that this Lord's Day would be absolutely and thoroughly to You in every way. From our attentiveness to study, to grow in our faith and our understanding of this these wonderful doctrines that You have interwoven into Your Word for us to know and chain our lives to. Lord, would You give us, give us grace for that task? But Father, would You also fill our next hour with the songs that we sing and the way that we gladly and joyfully and humbly place ourselves under the authority of Your Word. Lord, would Your Spirit do a, an incredible work of exalting Yourself and Your Son, not only in our lives, But Lord, we look forward to the ways in which you will do that even in this community of Northlake. Father, we pray for this series in advance as we spend many, many weeks just digging the shovel into the soil that is this book. We pray that you would help us to mine all that you have for us. We pray that you would expand our worship of you and make it all the more robust and sweet. And Lord, we pray this now all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat this morning. Excellent. We'll we'll get some more chairs if you're coming in. We also have some notes in the back table. Did everyone get a copy? Okay. Anyone need a copy? Let's start with that. Raise a hand. Okay, Mr. Moore's got a copy. We'll get some to... Brooke in the back. Praise God that we need more chairs, right? We'll go ahead and just give it just a minute. I know Dusty did this a while back, but just for the sake of... It's been fun to see, even in the midst of COVID, God's been really merciful to us to provide Cinnamon Creek. But also, too, just seeing faces in people. It's, it, it's starting to get challenging to keep up with the way in which the Lord is growing Northlake. And that's a, that's a rich challenge to have that we welcome. If this is your first time at Lance Thompson, can you just, not to point you out, if you raise a hand, get a sense of percentage-wise of... Who, this is your first time to grace, grace the doors. Perfect. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have the absolute joy of diving headfirst into some really, really deep waters over the next few weeks. And as you'll see in a moment, we're actually going to rest in the deep end of the pool for 
quite a, quite a while, okay? But I can assure you that we're going to find the waters to be not only refreshing, but strengthening as well along the way. Let me kind of give a backdrop of what this series is. Uh, what does it comprise of? What is Fundamentals of the Faith? Um, some of you have heard of it, some of you have not. This is a study, a series, really compiled and put together by Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. Pastor there is John MacArthur. It is a makeup of 13 lessons for us, give you context, we're going to spread this out across probably 24 weeks. There's no rush, there's no hurry, there's a lot of, lot of interesting places to go in this uh, pool of water, and we want to spend our time there and be blessed by it, okay? So 24 weeks, each of these 13 lessons is designed with this in mind. It's designed to shore up and solidify your understanding of key biblical doctrines found in God's Word. Give you a sense of the schedule over the next 24 weeks. You'll note where we'll start is what is known as bibliology, right? The theology or understanding of the Bible. As I mentioned earlier, much the reason why we read Psalm 19 and talked about Wycliffe and Tyndale. Anything that we do in Fundamentals of the Faith after this, going forward, has to rest on this book. And so we want a clear understanding of its origin, its content, its structure, its themes. We'll do that over the first couple of weeks. Then we'll traverse to he who is the subject of the Bible, that is God himself, right? Looking at theology proper. Not to be forgotten in all of that is the second person of the Trinity, Christ, our Savior and our King. We will look at Christology, the person and work of Jesus himself. We'll then move on to soteriology, that Christ came to procure sinners who make them right before God through His finished work on a cross, right? This miracle of salvation, in theology it's known as soteriology. So we will unpack that. That will be an equally rich time. Interwoven in that very miracle of giving eternal life to believers, you cannot leave out the Holy Spirit. So we will unpack the suitcase that, that is pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. We'll traverse there to ecclesiology, which is your understanding of the makeup, function, and purpose of the church. And then we'll close with some really rich and profitable time in practical theology or components of Christian living. I want to encourage you to simply maximize this series, right? There's the old adage that you get out what you put in. Obviously, God is over that, but there is a component where we have a responsibility. The more you avail yourself to this time of study, the more enriching it will no doubt prove to be, right? There's a correlation there, okay? So a few things. In this group, we're well aware that some of you will elect to, to simply come on Sunday morning. Participate in the morning, consume the material, praise God for that, and we, we know that you will, you will grow in your faith and your understanding of God's Word. Others of you will elect to take and obtain the book. And you'll notice there's a bookstore right kind of to the right there. Grab a hold of a book, and our encouragement, if you do, earmark part of your week in advance to Sunday and work your way through that lesson that's forthcoming. What that's going to do is a few things. In a grand way, it's going to prove to be a primer for this morning, right? Um, your mind will be mulling over. You'll be meditating on, the, um, on a memory verse for the, for the session at hand. Uh, you'll be asking questions and thinking through application and processing that in your own life. Do that, and I'm sure this hour will be all the richer for you as well. 
Another component of that, in your material, in that book, you'll notice they actually recommend a, there's a sermon. Uh, a lot of you listen to podcasts, queue up a sermon. By all means, if, if you drive to work or you're driving somewhere, put in the, the earphones and queue up a message. And John MacArthur actually has a correlating message to each one of these sessions. By all means, feel free to consume that as well. Everyone tracking thus far? Maximize the series. Let's talk about what on earth are we doing? What's the hope? What do we want it to accomplish? Let's just talk about the goal of of this series. First and foremost, we would say, or for starters, I should say, is assurance of eternal life. I'm going to read this morning 1 John 5, verse 10. If you can't read, because that's way back there, you have some notes, so feel free to look at those PowerPoint slides. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 reads the following. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony, here it is, in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does this have to do with the assurance of eternal life? John writes this, You have believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. How does that connect with our series in eternal life? There's something in our lives where obviously the Spirit of God resides within us, right? We know from the New Testament that He bears witness to our soul and our heart that we are children of God. Thereby we can cry out, Abba, Father. Praise God for that. Amen? Also with that, as you read God's Word, God is also doing an additional, supplemental, equally rich thing in your life. Every time I open it up, whether it be from Genesis to Revelation, that testimony of God concerning His Son is being conveyed to me. Right? He created the world. It was broken. Genesis 3.15. I'm going to make it right. Right? And from then on in redemptive history, He's moving everything along regarding this testimony of God concerning His Son. What does that do? Well, as that testimony that you've already believed in, as you're reading that testimony and it's unfolding, it only makes your assurance of eternal life that I am His and no one can snatch me out of His hand. And the sweetness of what He's done for you, it only expands it and broadens it and deepens it. The byproduct of that is that you have a stronger and stronger assurance as you grow in your Christian faith. That in part is our hope with the series. The other side of the coin is that if you be not in Christ, and perhaps through this series, God, by His grace, would reveal... I haven't believed this testimony of God regarding His Son. And I don't have this assurance well, that He would do the equally wonderful thing to reveal your eyes to this and show you your need for Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So part of our goal is assurance of eternal life. The other is just equipping for ministry. Ephesians 4 verse 11 reads the following. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service 
to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Listen, it is absolutely futile as well as absolutely foolish to expect to live a spiritual life, listen, without knowing spiritual truth. You cannot expect to live a spiritual life without knowing spiritual truth. Biblically untaught believers in biblically untaught churches are easy prey to false teachers. Their legs are weak. Sort of like my legs in real life, but that, well, I digress. We'll move on. Paul describes these people that are malnourished and anemic. In Ephesians chapter 4, they are children tossed here and there by waves and carried about every wind of doctrine. That doctrine blows. You, you know this, right? Movements, fads, books, ideas, and they catch on like wildfire. What? Why is that? It's because the church is not equipping people for the work of service. And they're blown around here and there. Our hope is that we would be equipped to stand upright and to represent Christ to a world that desperately needs to know Him. Our pastor has been expounding and opening up Colossians chapter really 2, several, several weeks ago now at this point, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ, right? It's the same thing in 2 Corinthians. We destroy every thought and speculation, lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought and make it obedient to Christ. How do you do that? Well, you do that when we're equipped. And that is the hope of this series. Really throughout the the scope of redemptive history, God could tell His people the very same thing He told His people in Hosea's day, right? That my people perish for lack of knowledge. We don't want that to happen. And so for that reason, it's an even greater reason on top of that, being equipped for the work of service and standing upright in our faith, but also equally so for honoring the Lord that saved us. That regular, systematic, and thorough study of the doctrine found in God's Word It's not an option. It's an imperative in the life of the believer. Any measure of faithful stewardship of your life will be fed and nourished by your understanding of this book. And that was by God's design. Why do I mention this? I have to be careful not to get on too far of a rabbit trail. Why do I mention this? There is a pernicious evil behind how many people are reading the Scriptures today. And it's evil because it's making individuals anemic and malnourished, earthly-minded, spiritually frail, and to no surprise, also incredibly unproductive. What is this pernicious evil? It's known as narcissistic eisegesis. What do we mean by that? We know what narcissism is, right? I see everything through the prism that is self, me. Narcissistic eisegesis. What does that mean? Eisegesis is where you take a meaning that's outside of the Bible 
and you approach the Bible and you read said foreign alien meaning into the Bible. That's what eisegesis means, into. Now Northlake, that's the exact opposite of what we are committed to here at Northlake, which, which is exegesis. It sounds like the exodus is because it is, right? We believe God has already interwoven a meaning into, his, into the Word. For us, it's to simply lay ourselves before that Word and have that meaning that He has already designed and woven into it come out to us. Very different than what's happening today. You pull up podcasts, pulpits, books, Christian publishing companies, online ministries. And, and men, it's not just male leadership in the church. There is a great proliferation and even profiting, say, even among female teachers. And I could go through the names, but I won't. And look at all of their studies. So many of them is this. Narcissistic eisegesis. From the patriarchs, to David and Goliath, to the prophets, to even the book of Revelation. Every time they read God's Word, and perhaps you've had conversations, they see themselves everywhere in Scripture. And the more you talk, the more you engage, you realize, you seem to be kind of the, the main character of this story here. That's not the case for us. Right? Ours is theocentric. God-oriented exegesis. This book that we have is all about one. And it's God. It's all about His exaltation. It's all about His glory. The reason why I say that is because as we have doctrines of God's Word wash over us, He is going to make His presence known front and center. And we get to walk into the next hour all the more energized to sing of His praises and submit our lives to the authority of His Word. That's our hope. This will not be about yourself. This will be about God. Obviously, you are a sub-character that by His grace gets to participate in this thing called redemption, of which we will equally give Him thanks for as well. Speaking of God, obviously, end of the day, we also just simply want to know Him more deeply. Right? Our prayer for the series is essentially the same as Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3.16. There's this lofty, high elevation prayer that Paul utters here. That He, He, God, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Here's an encouragement. If you just want to take one prayer before you study every moment in God's Word, just pray that, right? Or your time and fundamentals of the faith, just take that and pray that prayer. Bottom line is this series, and I want to be very clear about this, Churches that take the Bible very seriously need to be mindful of this. This series is intended to expand your awe of God. Not expand your pride in self. Okay? This series is intended to expand your awe of God. Not expand your pride in self. This is not about simply having knowledge for knowledge's sake. 
First Corinthians 10, right? This knowledge that puffs up, or Corinthians 8.1 rather. We know that. It puffs up. We hold our chest out. Why? Because we can win arguments. We can hold our own. We can throw our apologetic weight around. By all means, let's be equipped to defend our, way, our, our faith, right? But let's have words that are seasoned with salt and our actions seasoned with grace. And at the same time, may we come across as people not just out to win an argument, may we come across as so, people as being so enthralled with the majesty and glory of God, we simply want people to know Him. And we take it personally when His glory is offended. And we stand for Him. Our hope that as that awe of God is expanded, I, I don't know about you, but I'm excited landing in Lance Thompson. I'm excited what it is to meet in this room and then proceed on to that room. It's really exciting to think about as we spend time around key doctrines along the way. We get to traverse down that hallway and make our way, our way to the chairs in that main room. And we get to belt it out to the God that we get to read about here in the first hour. This should be ever so meaningful even to the next hour. So I'm grateful that you're here. Let's talk about just this morning and the next few weeks. What's the objectives of Lesson 1? One, we want to explain the origin of the Bible, including Revelation and how God used men to write His words. We want to get be given a brief overview of the Bible, its content, its structure, its themes. We want to present those themes of the Bible and have them come front and center in our minds, right? The glory of God, Jesus Christ Himself, the plan of salvation. We want to present the Bible's claims to be the inspired Word, but not just the inspired Word, but we want to unpack and be affected by the implications of that inspiration. And the fifth, we want to impress upon us the authority and veracity and completeness of this book, right? That it is sufficient for all that we need. And we'll talk about that more at length. For this morning, we're simply, simply going to cover one section, and that's the revelation of God. What do we mean by the revelation of God? Our memory verse for this particular lesson is 2 Timothy 3.16. Pretty familiar one, right? Uh, if you have notes this morning, can we just read that nice and loud? Project over the whistle. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Read along with me. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, this is the time, because it won't solely be me talking, this is time for interaction. What does 2 Timothy 3.16 say about the Bible? I didn't say speak in tongues. I said, um, what? what was that? Inspired by God. Okay, excellent. What? All true. Okay. Profitable. Use for, for all the all the lists there, right? For reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Let me ask you this, how much of the Bible is inspired? Oh, let's start there for a moment. Genesis to Revelation, all of God's Word is inspired. Now we'll unpack this more over the next four weeks, and 
And why do we do that? Well, again, because this book is going to be the foundation of everything the fundamentals of the faith material will expound upon and unpack and draw its authority from in the weeks to come. Right? We believe it's living. We believe it's active. And it's the words of Scripture we are convinced that have the power to not only change our hearts, but also our thinking and our understanding. So we're going to chain our lives to this book. Let's talk about the revelation of God. What is revelation? Where did the Bible come from? Well, to understand that, you have to understand something about this word called revelation. Revelation is the act of God whereby He discloses to man what would otherwise be unknown. The act of God whereby He discloses to man what would otherwise be unknown. Now, inspiration in a couple weeks is different. Inspiration is the process by, by which God, being the instigator, moved men by the Holy Spirit to write down His words. Okay? Two different things both wonderfully and equally true about the Bible. Now, there are two categories of revelation. For starters, there is natural revelation and there is special revelation. Natural revelation, short and sweet, is God revealing Himself along two planes. God revealing Himself through creation and through conscience. Let's talk about that now for a moment. God revealing Himself through creation. If you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We read about this earlier as you make your way there, just even in Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. That's natural or general revelation. And as we read chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, I want you to already be mulling over what are some things that you observe in creation that testify of God. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Well, how did He do that? Verse 20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, here it is, through that which has been, what church? Made. So that they are without excuse. What are some things you observe in creation that testify of God? Eternal power, divine nature. It would be hard to give the wrong answer here. Yes. Bulbs. Bulbs? Oh, I'm thinking light bulbs. Okay, you're thinking... See, that's where my mind goes. They grow. And then it turns cold, and you dig them up, put them in the garage, and then you plant them again. Yeah. So, bulbs, right? Uh, Agriculture. And then the cyclical nature of it, right? Um, I was... A couple of years ago, I sat with my father. He was in the midst of, of passing, right? He, he had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And I, was, uh, I had been in Ecclesiastes a lot, right? And it talks about the cyclical nature of life, and even down to the rivers. And literally right there in Jefferson, Texas, um, I'm on a hill, and there's a stream rolling down. There's plants that are dying, and, and um, 
going into the lake. It was basically the book of Ecclesiastes on display, right? So uh, everything from plant life to the cyclical nature, it dies, it comes back. Rhythms of creation, what else? Yes, fox. What's that? Animals that can change color, right? This creativity, God's design to, a lot of time for preservation's sake, right? There's this incredible survival purpose for it. What else? Yeah, just the weather, just in general, right? Yeah, absolutely. One more. Anything else? Yes. Your eyes? The complexity of them? Yeah, it's bewildering, right? Even the smartest of doctors. Our eyes and what they do, giving us sight, complexity of how they're structured, right? This, and we could, we could spend really the rest of our life talking about everything that we observe. The reality is everything that you observe in creation is testifying of God. His eternal power and His divine nature. And in many ways, we wouldn't know those attributes as we do without Him revealing them to us. So what a gift it is to be given eyes and to be able to constantly and perpetually see everything that He structured. Everything is of credit to Him. The entire natural world is literally bearing witness of this God that we worship through its beauty, complexity, design, and even usefulness. What's the byproduct of this? The Romans, Paul says there, God says, well, that means everyone I've made in my image, they are without excuse. No one can complain that God has left insufficient evidence of His existence and His character. In fact, the fault, if they reject God, lies solely at their feet. They are rejecting all of the evidence that they see around them, right? We know even in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that God has written eternity in our hearts. That means every single human being, and you know this, everyone has the same gnawing questions that they want to ask. Why am I here? How did I get here? Where am I going? Take every society, every culture, through every age... They're the same questions. And these questions are complemented by the fact that we live on this planet and in this universe, as we observe things, it's testifying, life is beyond myself and I have some questions I don't have answers to. Right? And people are miserable trying to answer these questions and they, what do they do? They just, they just opt to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So creation is testifying of God, this natural revelation, but also conscience. Turn over, probably one page to the right, Romans 2, 14. Romans 2, 14. Reads, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, not having the law, they are a law to themselves. In that they, and here's the important part, they don't have the law, but yet they still do the things of the law. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. Here it is. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What's he talking about here? One of the great apologetic reasons for the existence of God is something known as the moral argument. Right? 
all people, unbelievers and believers alike, possess this sense of moral normativity. What do we mean by this? There's this deep and instinctive sense of right and wrong. And that sense of right and wrong produces within you guilt when it's violated. This innate awareness of God's law, even when someone doesn't necessarily believe in God, this moral normativity still rests within them. Where does that come from? God tells us in Romans 2, it's there because I put it there. I literally wrote it on their hearts. You know eternity that I have written on the hearts of men? Ecclesiastes 3.11? I've also written my law on their, on their hearts, right? I've, I've, I have, in, there's their conscience there. I've implanted it within them. And there's this, this innate sense of awareness of wrongdoing. What's some examples of, of this? This is why taking of human life, the theft of individual property, the abuse of people's personhood, and the list could go on and on, they're all perceived as universally wrong. Take every culture, every society, right? You even have barbaric cultures that are very bloodthirsty, that have spent now ages suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, living in darkness, right? Worshipping demons. Look at them closely. They even have a conscience, right? It's harder to see in the barbaric nature of its culture, but it's there. And we have to ask, why is it there? Romans 2 tells us, but the fool that says in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14.1, they don't have answers to this moral argument. When they want to try to debate the existence of God, One of the places to land is right here. How do you explain your conscience? Someone has to determine what was right and what was wrong. There has to be an origin and a start to all of this. And where does this universal agreement come from? The explanation is, is that God is revealing Himself through our conscience. And praise God for that. Just give a pastoral pause for a moment and ask you to think about today. Do you notice anything about the conscience of society today? And you can go ahead and tell me. What do you notice about the conscience of society and culture today? Hardened. Seared. What? Selfish. Devoid of Christ. But? What's that? Yeah, and even, great job, absolutely calling good evil and evil good, right? As Isaiah said, sweet, bitter, and bitter, sweet. Mike. great point. Just in case you didn't hear, what Mike said is that people even seem to have a conscience in the sense that there's a lot of offense, offense being taken today, but it's not informed by the Bible, right? And we referenced earlier Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one be taken captive by the philosophy and ideas of men. 
And that's where it's coming from, right? This philosophy is now totally shifting this conscience now where there's offense where there's not actually substantive grounds for offense, right? We could go on and on and on, right? Abortion, redistribution of wealth, warp rebellion, sexuality, unmoved by the abuse of the weak. You see videos today of people being attacked and people just watching. It's the saddest, most disheartening thing. We have people being disobedient to parents and pastor kind of... elaborated on this over the last several weeks. And this just kind of grows in accentuated degrees with time. You really have in society people spurning pretty much every previously held moral construct of society that we used to deem as profitable and good. Right? And we're turning them upside down. And we're abandoning them. These things that are actually biblical principles. Right? with marriage and family structures and all of the blessings that if you live by God's design, it's the way of blessing. But as the Proverbs equally says, the way of wickedness is also really hard, right? And this world is experiencing that. This is the sad fruit of perpetually suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. When you're pondering, how did we get here? It's just year after year of suppression. So what we're finding today is, and it looks a lot like Romans chapter 1, doesn't it? Where eventually, after enough suppression, God finally says, I'm going to give you over. And it feels much like that today. God giving it over. So Paul rightfully said, Society has suppressed so long that, as was mentioned earlier, it's literally seared our conscience. You, you get the word imagery, right? You sear uh, an extremity that has a lot of sensation and feeling. Will you sear it and scar it long enough or enough, it starts to lose its sensation. That's why people can do very appalling things today and go, how on earth did they, did they sleep at night? It's a conscience that's seared. This is what happens when you disregard that steel but grand voice inside of you. And in large part is what attributes to much of the degradation of society that we see today. Well, what is the purpose of general revelation before we move on to special revelation? The purpose is to cause man to search for fuller revelation of God. If eternity is written on the hearts of men... And they observe creation, the sun rising and the sun setting, the weather coming through, storms and power, divine nature, eternal power, and you cannot escape it. It's to cause man to search for a fuller revelation of God. To seek, to have those answers to those gnawing questions answered. Now, for natural revelation and revealing, at least displaying the existence of God as power and nature, can you think of how natural revelation falls short of giving people enough information to lead directly to salvation? Let me ask that again, and I welcome your thoughts. Can you think how natural revelation falls short of giving people enough information to lead them directly to salvation? Why does it fall short? Doesn't tell us about Christ. Doesn't tell us about Christ, right? Anything else? Yes, Mister. 
What's that? Our sin nature. So even our need for Christ. The students are on their game tonight. Uh, this morning, rather. Our need for Christ. The person of Christ. Anything else? The need and how to be reconciled to God when we have offended in our sin. Okay. Need of Christ. Our bankruptcy of self. Christ came. But then how am I made right through this Christ who came, right? Natural revelation doesn't speak to any of that. So this general revelation gives evidence for the existence of God, but it does not reveal to man how to be saved from his sinfulness and separation from God. And this is why God has also provided special revelation. Special revelation in a nutshell is this. God revealing Himself to man through miracles and signs, dreams and visions, theophanies, which is simply the appearance of God to man in real time and space, tangible form. You can go throughout the Old Testament and see that. Revealing Himself through the prophets and the greatest prophet being Jesus Christ Himself and obviously through His written word, the Bible. Turn in for a moment to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 3, and as you kind of park there, you have some Old Testament passages here, and even New Testament of these that we just referenced, of God revealing Himself through through signs and wonders, miracles, dreams and visions and theophanies, which are really fascinating, whether it be to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even Moses, they all experienced this theophany, God revealing Himself in tangible form, although hidden and and veiled, right? As we see in Moses. Dreams and visions, you have Jacob's ladder, you have the book of Daniel, for starters, and you have miracles and signs. So whether you're talking the flood or the burning bush or plagues or parting of the Red Sea, and that's just through the first few books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. But not to be forgotten in all of this is that God has revealed Himself through Christ Himself. Hebrews chapter 1 reads, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. There's your miracles and signs, dreams and visions, theophanies of the Old Testament, right? We'll cover this a little bit more, but this is kind of a timeline that's in your notes of this history for you to get a sense of as you're reading books, this is kind of where they fit on the timeline of redemptive history. A layout of the books, right? This whole part of the Old Testament that Christ is coming. It took no time for the world to be broken and be plunged into sin and darkness and man to be separated from the God who made them. Thankfully, we have Genesis 3.15 where God says, I'm going to bring someone and send someone who's going to make all of this right. Crush the head of the serpent. Defeat the power of sin and death. Right? The seed of the woman. Basically championing to us throughout the Old Testament that this one, Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, He is coming to make all things right. You have Christ came in the Gospels. Why Christ came and what He's doing now, but also that 
the fact that, praise God, Christ is also coming back for His people. He spoke long ago to the fathers and in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, but in these last days, this age of the church, He has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed heir of all things. The Pentateuch, prophetic books, historical, poetry, God spoke in many ways, but He's spoken to us, revealing His glory, right? Beholding the glory of God in the, in the face of Jesus Christ, right? As Paul says. We're going to talk more about the structure and content of the book in the weeks to come. Missing a wonderful page, right? It's been several months since I taught and I've got a page missing of my notes. That's okay. That's okay. I might as well be forthright about it. All right. Thankfully, we have technology. Let's talk about the sufficiency, the superiority of God's special revelation in Scripture. I'm going to look for it for a moment because I'm sure there were wonderful things to say. If you are playing a joke on me this morning, it's okay. I just need you to fess up later, okay? Just come, come to me. All right. The sufficiency and superiority of God's special revelation. For starters, to lead us to salvation, right? 2 Timothy 3.15. Our memory verse for this lesson is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures inspired by God. Verse 15, the lead up to that, Paul says, And from childhood you have known the sacred writings. From childhood... God in His providence gave Timothy, Lois and Eunice, Jima and Mama, right? To be reading the Scripture to Him. Speaking the Scripture to Him. From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, you through many years, it was proclaimed to you your need for Christ... It was proclaimed to you that Christ was coming. And it's proclaimed to you how man would be made right with God. Right? Now Timothy is an adult and now leader of a church. Right? With great responsibility. Now he begins to look back in history and go, what an incredible gift Lois and Eunice were to me. But more importantly, what an incredible gift those scriptures were that they imparted to me. How does it make you wise into salvation? Right? The book of Galatians talks about the law as a tutor unto Christ. Right? And to echo everything that was mentioned here. This law, right? if you read the book of Hebrews, the law is unable to make perfect. And so it's perpetually communicating to you that something is amiss. I am continually and consistently missing the mark and there's nothing that I can do to maintain perfection and right standing with God in my own doing. I need someone to come for me to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is what the law, moment after moment, proclaimed to Timothy. Making him wise and ready, soil soft, to receive this message that is known as the gospel. It leads to salvation. I want to encourage you in your evangelism. We make a lot about how we engage conversations and bring up the subject of our faith and the message of eternal life found only 
only, only in Jesus Christ. Like, we want to know tips and tricks and trade. The conversation has to always start right here. Be well versed to recall and express the authority that's found in this book lovingly, but there's authority here. And there's a supernatural work that God does that your words can't do. He leads to salvation. Have confidence in this book that God has revealed to us. Secondly, just to reiterate, to equip the saints. Right? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is a living and active book. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Right? Able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You may do a great job of putting on a face. Chris taught the youth a couple weeks ago about putting on a mask. This book, when it's opened, cuts right to the quick of the matter. Reveals us who we are and all of our failings and points us to the grace that we need. Living and active equipping us. We read earlier a few things here. What does God's Word do? I just kind of want to circle back with where we started because our time is ending. What, is, what are four things that God's Word does? And we'll unpack this a little bit more. And I know I keep saying that, but I have the luxury of having a couple of weeks on this. So, um, One is restores the soul. Restores the soul. That soul that's beaten down and battered, discouraged and dismayed. God has a way of rejuvenating that soul. He makes wise the simple. He opens up eyes. He gives understanding. He gives joy to the heart. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Right, The psalmist said on a number of occasions. And what did he say? Hope in God. Right? This book gives joy to the heart and gets light to the eyes. Knowledge and understanding. You, you begin to have answers to the questions of life and those eternity-focused questions that are in your heart. They all start to have answers. And you begin to perceive things through a worldview that's now shaped with not some sort of philosophy of man, constructs of, of humanity, right? You have this worldview that's shaped by this book, this ancient book, but this living book, and this relevant book. And it begins to shape how you see the crime that you see on the news. The politics and its inability to make the world right. And there's no human government that can bring a utopia upon this planet. You have answers to all these things. Why? Because you are seeing everything, not through narcissistic eisegesis, but through a biblical worldview. Everything is shaped by that. Why do we say all this? A couple of years ago, um, we were living in Atlanta, Georgia. And there was a pastor there. I can go ahead and mention him because he's, well, he's broadly wet, read. Uh, Andy Stanley released a book called Unhitched. Right? The premise of the book, book was unhitching the Old Testament from your faith. You want the book in a nutshell because I wouldn't encourage you to read it. But the summation of it was is that the Old Testament is completely irrelevant. The church 
should just do away with it. We are a New Testament people, which is true. But there's nowhere in God's Word of which we are to ever unhitch our faith from what is three-fourths of this book. All Scripture is inspired by God. Yesterday, today, and forever. How does that impact next hour? Well, fathers, we get to have a great message on fathering, right? A measure of it will be encouraging, a measure of it will be convicting. Regardless of what the Lord desires to do in the next hour, our disposition ought to be this. Lord, I want to consume Your Word now this morning. I want to feast upon it, I want to be nourished by it, and I want to grow by it. All Scripture is inspired by God. It should affect your posture in our next hour. Okay? Next week, we're going to cover inspiration and even the construction and canonization of the Bible. Really delving into more how this Bible came to us and God's kindness to preserve it and see to it that you have a copy of it in your hands this morning. Let's go ahead and bow our head and close our eyes. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank You this morning. We want to start for Your Word. We want to thank You for Your grace that we have a God who is a, a personal being that desires to reveal Himself to those that He's made in His image. And for this week, for the next few weeks, we really get to marvel at this kindness of You. We want to thank You for starters, just even this day with our drive here, there are a measure of things of which we probably didn't even give lengthy notice to. The sunrise, the fields the livestock that be on those fields, the cyclical nature of the planet, clouds in the sky, blue, blue sky above, the beauty, the design, the complexity, and even the measure of our health to be able to be here and have hearts that beat and be sustained and upheld. Lord, we thank You for the way in which general revelation really screams to us Your divine nature and eternal power. Lord, we would also be remiss not to also equally thank You for the fact that You continue to reveal Yourself in even more elaborate ways. And that is through the special revelation that we know as Your incredible, matchless, perfect, timeless Word. We pray that You would intensify our reverence for its authority. We pray that You would quicken our steps to place ourselves underneath its authority in our lives, whether, Lord, it be to reprove us or correct us, or, Lord, even this morning, whether it be fathers or even mother or children in this room, Lord, we get the blessing of being trained in righteousness by this book. Lord, I pray that You would grow us in our understanding of these rich, wonderful doctrines that You would equip us as Your people, and that the byproduct is that North Lake Bible Church would be comprised of people who are growing more and more in love with their Savior, more and more grateful for all that He accomplished on the cross for them. But Lord, also a people that are more ready and apt and strengthened to stand on their feet firmly in a world that is lost, dark, and by and large is synonymous to, Lord, really hating You and everything regarding You. Help us to stand strong. 
We thank You for the role that this, these hours get to play. Be with our pastor next hour. May you fill him with power and conviction and clarity as he stands behind the pulpit. Lord, it's not his words we're here to see. It's your word. I pray that you would use him in great ways. And Lord, most importantly, would you just delight in exalting yourself. We pray this now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.